Hello and welcome to the Diction Police. I'm your host, Ellen Rissinger, an American vocal coach accompanist on the music staff of the Zemperoper in Dresden, Germany. This week's episode is a special edition specifically for young coaches in response to a request from the Facebook page. Our guests include conductor Eric Nielsen and singers Simon Neal, John Packard, and Nadia Mashantov, all talking about what they're looking for from a coach and a rehearsal pianist. I'll talk a little bit about my experience, and I'll also include some great tips that my friends have sent me. There won't be any text for today, but there will still be a post at the blog at www.thedictionpolice.com. Don't forget the the. This coming weekend, I'll be moving into the apartment that I just bought, and I'm not sure when my DSL is going to be turned on. So once I moved in, I'll get back online as quickly as possible, and we'll be able to get back to our diction. My piano teacher at Carnegie Mellon was Ralph Zitterbart, who himself was a vocal coach. Ralph was one of the biggest influences on my life. After he heard me parroting the Spanish students in the hallways, he said, you know, you have a really good ear for language. You should take French. So I took French. By the following spring, Ralph got me the position accompanying the opera workshop. And once I realized that people would pay me to accompany singers, I knew that I'd found my calling. While Ralph taught me solo piano rep, he also taught me Lieder, assigning Strauss songs like Ständchen and Cecilie, and he made me learn to sing along with myself. He also got me to take diction classes, to go to voice class every week, and to play for the voice teacher's private lessons on Saturday mornings. When I was first out of college, having graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in piano performance, quite honestly, the first thing I did was to get a job at McDonald's. Being out of school, I had no idea how to get work as a pianist. But after three weeks of working at Mickey D's, I had a nervous breakdown. I am just not built for that kind of job. And whether I was going to starve or not, I knew I just couldn't go back. So the day that I quit, I went into the music school at Carnegie Mellon to see if someone would let me practice. And I ran into a woman looking for someone to accompany her girls' choir on a Thursday evening for 25 bucks a week. Now remember, this was the early 90s. And then I found a small church looking for an organist for 50 bucks a week, and suddenly I could at least pay my rent every month. I sent my tiny little resume in to everybody in Pittsburgh and ended up playing dance classes, music theater voice lessons, private voice lessons around town, music directing a lot of music theater and community theater and summer stock, accompanying lots of Christmas functions for different choirs, and pretty much playing constantly. You'll probably think I'm exaggerating, but I was seriously playing the piano 16 hours a day. I said yes to everything, and yes, I also burned out a lot, but I also learned how to play and not get injured. The next year, though, Carnegie Mellon University hired me back as a baby coach. Knowing that I had chops but no experience, they hired me to play for voice lessons, diction classes, song literature classes, the opera workshop, and coachings. It was the most amazing experience because I spent all day, every day, for years, hearing what voice teachers say, what coaches say, what repertoire is important, and what diction rules are important. The decision to go to Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music came because up until that point, I had been playing mostly leader and art song repertoire. But I really wanted to get into opera. And I still remember my father saying, What? You're just starting to make enough money to live, and now you want to be a student again? But I went. And grad school at Cincinnati was just as phenomenal in a different way. 
As a grad student, again I played voice lessons my first year, but now for older students, masters, doctoral, artist diploma, some of whom were already having professional careers. My second year, I played for the operas and learned how to follow a conductor and anticipate what they need. We had coaching class with Dr. Kelly Hale every week, and all of the students in the class were total opera overachievers. Coaching class consisted of one of the student coaches working with a student singer, and then after the singer left, the other coaches would critique the work that that coach had just done. And we were tough on each other. In Kenneth Griffith's accompanying seminars, we studied sight-reading skills, Russian diction, some specific song cycles, and we worked on our recitals. Between all of that and having played for Larry Marietta's coachings and diction classes back at Carnegie Mellon, I learned quite a bit about how to talk to a singer in a coaching, what will bring out the best results. This is the kind of training that I suggest to everyone, not just piano lessons, not just listening to recordings and reading the books and seeing productions. Go to lessons, listen to voice teachers, sit in on coachings, ask to play coachings so that you can hear what coaches say and still be practicing. Ask questions. Let other coaches listen in and tell you their thoughts. As you can tell from this podcast, I do that all the time. There's a difference between what a voice teacher talks about and what a coach talks about, and it's important to learn that distinction. There's also a huge difference between what individual voice teachers say and individual coaches. There are certain universal truths, but we all have different ways to say the same things and different things that we listen for. So it's great to hear a broad range of ideas from as many people as possible. You'll hear things that work and things that don't work, and all of that will add to your own repertoire. If you have any contacts at your local opera house, don't just go see the performance, go see the rehearsals. It's much more interesting to watch how people work, how they deal with the process of putting on an opera, how the conductor gets the singers to do what they want, and how singers show conductors what they need, and how the pianist interprets that all in between. Better to watch and learn before you're put on the spot, right? Just a word on finding jobs. When I first started doing contract work, I got Opera America's listing of all the opera companies in the U.S., made a list of the cities that I knew people near, and sent letters to all of the opera companies in those cities saying, I have family and friends nearby, and I would love the opportunity to play for you while I'm visiting. This kind of mailing is scary but important, because you never know what may have happened in the opera house recently. When I first did that with Kentucky Opera, it turned out that the day before they got my letter, their staff rehearsal pianist had quit just two weeks before a production of Bohem was about to start. So they asked me to come immediately, and I ended up working there three shows a season for four years. One summer I was in Utah Festival Opera, and before I left for home, I got out a map and called every opera company on my drive home to eastern Pennsylvania, asking if they needed a pianist. And through that I got an audition for Pittsburgh Opera on my way home. Now, I stress for hours over making this kind of a call or sending out letters with resumes, but it's a great way to get your name around. There are as many paths to a career as there are performers, so whatever happens, don't get discouraged. Follow your heart. Your instincts will lead you to the path that's right for you. It's easy to say that anything's possible, but it's really only possible if you're willing to work for it. So find what you want to do with all your heart and soul, and somehow everything else will all work out. When I decided to do this episode, the first thing I did was take my recorder to rehearsals 
and ask some friends for a few sentences on what they're looking for from a coach. First you'll hear from Simon Neal, then John Packard, and finally Nadima Shantaf. What am I looking for in a coach? What are you looking for in a coach? The first thing I think, if you're going there for, on a, for a new piece, you've got the coach has got to check the notes, the text, the rhythm. Yeah. Are you singing all that? And I think it's also very important that the coach starts to talk to the singer about the harmony underneath. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's very important that singers understand the harmony that's going on underneath, particularly if they're singing anything 20th century, particularly 20th century, or even Wagner. You need to understand the harmony. Yeah. don't want you to get bogged down there, but understand what it's, what, where it's going. I think that, that can help the singer an awful lot. The next thing I think that uh, I want from a coach is I need them to have a good pair of ears so they can... I don't want them to fiddle with my technique, but I want them to be able to say to me, look, I think that's not, that note doesn't sound quite right to me. I'm looking for a more open or a more closed or whatever. Or more bright sort of sound, or more... Or whatever, but... Maybe that's something you could talk to your teacher about. I, don't, I think it's sometimes quite dangerous, if I may say, if, if coaches haven't sat through a lot of singing lessons and just approach it from a musician's point of view. Yeah. Next thing, I want the coach, pianist, to breathe, breathe with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's very important. And um, I think the more they can learn about from other singers, the top singers... As, uh, if they can sit in on, on coaching sessions with top singers, mm-hmm. then the more they're likely to learn about tricks and things like that and repertoire. Yeah. What do you look for in a coach? I expect singers who go to a coach to already have most of this stuff, the mainframe, worked out. Mm-hmm. The words, the rhythm, and the pitches. I find I like coaches who are really persnickety and have a way of putting that across more than one way. Mm-hmm. Working here in, in Dresden, Dresden, um, <laughs> I've been working on all this new German repertoire. With the Germans. With the Germans. And they are making sure that I connect here. Because you, you understand German as being kind of a... A glottal. A, a glottal language. You know, you start and stop, start and stop. But there are places where things just glide together and it's, it's wonderful. But you need sometimes, you need somebody to say, eh, you must do this. What would you tell a young coach that they should look for when they're starting to work with singers? Well, it depends on how forthright you can be with the singer. Mm-hmm. If you have a singer come in and he starts to sing, um, and he's a tenor, and he starts singing like a baritone, mm-hmm. and he doesn't quite have the, the top, mm-hmm. I think you should stop him. Tell him, he says, you know, lighten up. Yeah. A little bit, maybe breathe low and 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 sing a little higher in your in your the head resonances. Try that, you know. Yeah. But singers are really touchy, and they don't want usually don't want you to talk about their technique. Mm-hmm. So I suggest that you find a way to maybe bring that through to the singer without telling them that their technique is wrong. Exactly. And that's that's a special. That is. A special and coach who I can think, do that. Well, and I think you've learned that. You've learned most of the job. Yes. <laughs> yes. Es kommt immer ein bisschen auf die Partie drauf an. Mm-hmm. Wenn es natürlich sprachliche Schwierigkeiten noch gibt, dann finde ich das toll, wenn, wenn, wenn ein Korrepetitor sich mit der Sprache gut auskennt und man von der, von der richtigen Sprache aus basierend aufbaut und dann die Musik dazu kommt und was natürlich auch oft wichtig ist, weil Musik und Sprache zusammen oft was Spezielles ist. Es ist nicht ein reiner Sprachlehrer, weiß oft nicht, wie das 
mit der Musik zu kombinieren ist. Und ja. das ist natürlich toll, wenn ein Korrepetitor beides kann. Dann gibt es auch Partien, die musikalisch sehr, sehr anspruchsvoll sind und schwierig. Dann kommt man vielleicht deutsche Partien, zum Beispiel Strauß oder so, kommt man erstmal an und freut sich, wenn ein, der Korrepetitor alleine erstmal nur mit den Noten hilft, dass man den richtigen Noten und den richtigen Rhythmus so langsam versteht. Dann gibt es Partien, wo man sich vielleicht zusammentut und über Phrasierung nachdenkt oder der, man, man freut sich, wenn, wenn man einen Pianisten hat, der einem auch musikalisch einfach inspiriert. Weiterbringt, ja. Genau. <lacht> Nadja said, it depends on the role. It's always good when a coach understands how the language and the music work together, because someone who's only a language coach sometimes doesn't understand the differences that need to be made in singing. Then she said that in some operas like Strauss, a singer is usually very happy to find a coach willing to help them figure out the notes and the rhythm. But with easier musical literature, you can take it further and talk about phrasing and music. They all touched on different points, but a lot of it is the same. The first and foremost is the most pedantic. Singers want to be sure that they're singing the right notes and the right words at the right time. I also asked this same question on my own Facebook page, and I'll condense and paraphrase some of the answers I received, because so many of them said the same things. From the coaches, the advice was to focus on diction, being as specific as you can, especially if you decide to specialize in a language, interpretation, and translation of text, and doing what the composer actually wrote. Since knowing the repertoire might be a bit too much at the beginning, concentrate on knowing style, what makes Händel different from Mozart, what makes Puccini different from Verdi, and be sure to study bel canto style. One of the hardest pieces of advice for most of us is not to play as a virtuoso pianist, but rather to play what the singer needs to hear, Remember Simon said he wants to hear Simon said <laughs> Simon said that he wants to hear the chord structure he wants to know what the harmonies are that are going on underneath him bare bones are sometimes better than throwing everything in because singers need to feel a structure and know what to listen for not to hear how fabulously we can play all the notes we save that for the concert stage from the singers camp the answers were much like what we've already heard Check that the diction and musical ideas are accurate, shaping musical lines, that the interpretation and style are correct, as well as just plain making sure that the rhythm and the pitches are accurate. I know I say that a lot, but really, I do spend an awful lot of time telling people what's on the page. Something that's easy to forget is to make sure to breathe with the singer. We as pianists don't actually have to breathe in order to play our instrument. But when it comes to singing, breathing is the most important thing. If you aren't breathing with your singer, you won't be able to give them that split second of time that can be the deciding factor in making music, getting through the next phrase, or even getting through the whole piece. One thing that was reiterated by all of my singer friends, and you'll notice that Simon and John said the same thing, was that we as coaches should not get involved in technique. When a coach hears something that doesn't sound free or round or lovely and beautiful, The best thing we can do is make them aware of it and allow them to figure out how to correct the problem with their own technique. Honestly, this is one reason that I've ended up focusing so much on diction in my own work. I've found that just the slightest shift in vowels or the relaxation or emphasis of certain consonants can fix quite a number of issues without ever talking about technique. 
One of the coaches responded by saying, never underestimate how important it is to continue to remind young singers to put initial consonants before the beat and to encourage constant legato with vibrato. I agree with all of this wholeheartedly. We've talked a lot in previous episodes about getting consonants before the beat, but it always bears repeating. Constant vibrato is something that I'm a stickler for. It's one thing for someone to specifically straight tone a note for a style or expression, but a whole other ballgame when it's a habit. That kind of habit generally comes from a lack of support. A huge thank you to Natalie Doucet, Dan Miller, Thomas Ullmann, Patrick Hansen, Jason Nadecki, Shelby Herndon, Alexandra Sessler, Ann Butler, Liz McConaughey, Christine Graham, Amanda Pabian, Graham Anduri, Christy Valeriano, and Allison Trainer for responding to my Facebook question and letting me use their answers in this episode. Singers don't think like us. They're not looking at the page, so after a while they can lose a sense of what beat we're on in the measure. So when a singer is having a tough time coming in after the rests, one of my favorite tricks is to have them start counting from one right from their first rest with no relationship to where we are in the measure. Not three, one, two, and then come in, but one, two, three, and then come in. I know it sounds a little weird, and I hope I'm explaining it well enough, but I promise it'll help singers stay on track. One personal observation about working as a coach. In America, we as coaches are trained that singers need to come to us basically perfect, and then we work on finishing and polishing from there. And you even heard John say that he expects singers to go into a coaching that way. Historically, in Germany, it used to be that the coach was expected to teach singers their roles from scratch, although that's changed somewhat over the years. And I also had one boss who insisted it was best if coaches actually learned the opera with the singer, which I hated because I always like to do my own homework first. I know some coaches from both continents who get extremely grumpy if a singer comes in and hasn't looked at the score. I used to get grumpy about that too, but I've relaxed my position on that a lot over the years. Mostly because if a singer has learned something wrong, sometimes it's too late to fix any mistakes that they might have built in. I have a number of singer friends who come to me just as they begin to learn an opera or a recital, and we go through everything, putting it on tape with the language, the music, talking about the places that are troublesome, discussing what they want to do with cadenzas, subtext, the meaning of the poetry, the translation, what conductors usually do, pretty much everything. Now, if they come to me after that and haven't done any homework, yes, I get upset. But usually, with that kind of a guideline, by the time they come back, we can get very specific because they've gotten all the basics right, so we can work on their interpretation and what they want to bring to the role. In the end, I'd rather that they come to me first so that I know they're going to learn it correctly rather than coming to me when it's too late to fix things. Of course, the next thing I did was talk to Eric Nielsen, who conducted the Hensa opera that we've been talking about for the past few episodes. I was babysitting his dog Emma that night, which was very exciting, as you can imagine, for Miss Kitty Fantastico, and you'll hear Emma searching for attention throughout the interview a little bit. What are you looking for from a young coach in, as a rehearsal pianist? It depends on the repertoire. Every singer needs something different from a pianist. Mm -hmm. If a singer is not rhythmic, I want the coach to hear that, know that they're not watching the stick, and to just bump them somehow 
musically. Yeah. If a singer's going too high, I, I, you know, too high in the pitch, bad intonation or whatever, or they're nervous, I want the coach to be able to just play their play their part lightly. Exactly. Because the point of a staging rehearsal is obviously not to forget the music. Obviously, we're we're working on on the staging, but we always need to keep reminding the singer an orchestra's going to show up. You're singing that wrong. Too late. Follow the conductor. Yeah. These are these are wonderful things. Then we we can talk about the language. We can talk about all sorts of other things. I love it when the pianist finds a way to correct the singer gradually. We don't want to interrupt the stage director. We want to be able to that the work should flow. I was just going to say flow yeah. is the important thing. Flow, but at the same time to find find the right moment. What's very, very bad is when we rehearse a section five times, we keep repeating a section with, for the staging, and if there's a mistake that's happened, once you've done that for 20 minutes, that mistake is, is in, in forever. Exactly. You're not going to get it out. So it's very important to find a way to elegantly interrupt the rehearsal and just and get it right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. What I, I love... Um, it depends on the type of repertoire. If we're talking about a Mozart or a Verdi opera, you could, where you can really have fun and conduct the orchestra, and if you see the pianist with you, if you if you nudge the second violins or something, or you nudge this, when the pianist can read that, and that's even more pleasurable. Because if you're sitting there for three hours doing one scene, yes. then have fun with it. Exactly. Throw something in that you haven't thrown yeah. in the first twenty times. Yeah. Yeah, and with 20th century music, I mean, I know from my point of view, I mostly, in that case, try to keep a steady rhythm and make sure the singers know what they're supposed to be singing. Absolutely. More, I mean, than, more than trying to play every single note from the orchestra. Yeah, the whole point of, of the piano reduction is to know what not to play, mm-hmm. to look at it, and it's, it's all the information is there, and it's great, but we're not a computer, and the singer's not going to hear all the little small notes, all the fast notes. They're going to hear big block harmonies and things. We need to give them structure, and we need to make sure that the singers are doing it exactly. We're we're not making the music for the stage director. We are (laughs) making sure that the singers are well prepared so they can come to the Zitzprobe and and just... And not get lost, basically. Not get lost, you know. And and obviously, always to be helpful, where do I find my starting pitch? This is also preliminary work. But for for me, it's mainly knowing that when the coach knows that this, this, what the singer's doing is not going to work when the orchestra shows up, that the coach somehow finds a way of just pinching the singer. And making saying, sure the singer yeah. finds out how they're going to figure that out. Yeah. Watch out. What you're doing now isn't going to work. You know, you're messing it up. And that it just, you know, and it might just be playing, the, playing it a bit stronger, you know, playing with the, with, the, with the voice. What I love is when some pianists react and for example, they know that the rhythm is a bit wackelish, a bit, uh-huh. a bit wobbly, wobbly, <laughs> and then they, you bang out the left hand. Yeah. For for example, because that's exactly what I do as a conductor when I feel that the orchestra does something wrong. I, I look for the people playing on the beat. You know, for the in the hands that I'm doing is sometimes the harp, it's sometimes the third bass. I go right to them and I focus on them and I I say, you know, we're setting the rhythm. We lay down the law. And then it, it corrects itself. But exactly. you have to know where to look. Yeah. And it's also to be found in the piano reduction. Notice we came right back to not playing all the notes. 
Just a few tricks that work for me when it comes to realizing a piano vocal score. If there are parallel double thirds in both hands, play just the top line in the right and the bottom line in the left hand so that you're playing tenths. Otherwise, things tend to get a little too thick, especially in Mozart. If double thirds or double sixths, sixths are tripping you up, play the doubles just on the beat or every other note. Better to be exactly in time and give the illusion of playing all the notes than to get them all but lose the rhythmic pulse. As a general rule, I play wind parts with higher wrists and string parts with lower wrists. And when strong chords come up that are played by the brass, I play them as block chords to make it really thick, as opposed to breaking up the chords if it's strings, because they tend to sound a little gentler. Be sure that when you play running octaves that you don't sound like you're playing Rachmaninoff, unless of course it's a Rachmaninoff song. I heard one young pianist accompanying Durch Zärtlichkeit from the abduction from the Seraglio, Die Entführung aus dem Serai, and when she played Und Paul tanzahanken plagen, she made this huge crescendo and slowed the singer way down like you would in a romantic piano concerto. A Mozart orchestra won't do that. And in fact, it's usually better to let a singer move a little faster up to a high note so that they can spend more time on the high note itself. A staging rehearsal demands a different kind of concentration than coaching. The conductor expects us to do all the things we normally do, and also to understand his musicality and what he or she is trying to create in terms of the architecture of the piece. If a singer is missing, we're expected to be able to sing their lines while playing and following the conductor and listening to everybody else. Sometimes in a chorus staging rehearsal, there'll be no soloists called. In fact, just this morning in rehearsal, I sang the entire first three scenes of Idomeneo with all the recits. And tonight after the chorus left and we only had the extras to work with, I sang all the chorus parts too. Plus, I've had to jump into orchestra rehearsals to sing roles like Lady Macbeth from Atsensk, Gilda in Rigoletto, and Lulu to make up for a sick singer. In rehearsals, people also look to us for translation details and continuo ideas for the earlier operas. Eric and I talked a little bit about modern music, and again, we said that singers don't need every note. Simon had also said how much a singer needs to hear harmonies in a coaching to understand how they fit into the chordal structure. When it comes to modern operas, and by that I mean anything that's not your standard tonal writing, singers need to feel as though they still hear a tonality. So when coaching them on atonal, polytonal, aleatoric music, it's often better to actually create make-up harmonies or simplify complex chords so that they get a structure first. That way, when the orchestra starts playing lots of crazy things, they still have inside of them a harmonic sense that they can hold on to. The other thing Eric said was that we should nudge singers. This can be anything from leaning into the rhythm, like he said, playing notes when we hear them going off, throwing text if there's no prompter, and being very specific and staying with the conductor if the singer starts to schlep. When giving singers notes in a rehearsal, it's important to understand how much information is too much information. The focus is on the acting, so some things will automatically go out the window in a staging rehearsal. I usually try to wait until we're about to start the third time through a section to remind singers of a text, rhythm, or pitch mistake. By then, they can usually coordinate thinking about both staging and music again, and if they can't, oftentimes it's corrected by the next rehearsal. It's a truth universally acknowledged <laughs> that if the conductor is not at the staging rehearsal, 
Don't be surprised that no matter what you do, the singers will always say that the tempo is wrong. I'm not ragging on singers here at all. All I'm saying is that singers experience the beat and the tempo differently when they see a conductor. I can play an aria down to the metronome marking exactly as the conductor does, and someone will say to me, you know, I think we did that just a little bit differently last time. <laughs> Don't take it personally. Just try to find a balance between what you know the conductor wants from the singer and what the singer is able to handle in their absence. Sometimes, if a singer gets really insecure in a rehearsal, they'll lay the blame on us. A long time ago, I had a huge name singer flip out on me very publicly in a rehearsal because she came in a measure early, and she blamed me and said that it was not recognizable what I played, which was not true. Rather than scream back or walk out of the rehearsal like some of my colleagues had suggested I do, I sat there and let it go, and the rest of the singers and conductor came to me throughout the day to offer me their support. Remember, we're all insecure. Anyone who says that they're not insecure is lying because they're insecure about it. So don't let someone else's insecurity undermine your self-confidence, and do your best not to let your insecurity affect how you treat others. If you go about your job in a professional manner, everyone will respond to you professionally. And those lousy moments are very few and far between. Prompting. Prompters say the next line of the opera in time for the singer to catch it and basically keep the singers in line so that the conductor can focus more on the orchestra. In the States, very few houses have them, and this position is generally performed by coaches or conductors. But in Germany, almost every opera house has prompters called souffleurs or souffleuses, and they're usually singers. In a repertory house, it's a necessity, because over the last week, a singer may have been in Barber of Seville, Zalome, and now tonight they have La Juive. Having a prompter there ensures that if the singer forgets a word or whatever language they're in, they'll have a chance to get back on track. It requires a high level of skill with languages and an understanding of when the singer needs to hear the words, as well as sometimes an intuition as to when something is about to go wrong. To finish off the episode, I wanted to talk for a minute about auditioning as a coach because one of the questions I got was about singing while playing piano. This is one of the toughest parts of our job, but also for me the funnest part. I would have given a lot to be a singer, but in reality, I am a pianist. And I think those two facts are the reason that I'm a vocal coach, because it's the best of both possible worlds. All right, so singing and playing. If you've been listening to the podcast or have looked at the website, you've seen the seven steps to learn music. Guess what? They apply to us too. The human brain is not wired to multitask. It functions best when it does only one thing. So sit yourself down away from the piano and start translating and reading text as a monologue. Then learn the singer's music just the way I keep saying, music separate from text, separate from rhythm. The only way I know to feel secure singing and playing at the same time is to basically have the singer's parts memorized. One thing I like to do is tape myself reading the text, then I follow that track up with taping the notes, and finally tape them all together. Then I listen to it while I'm out running or at the gym or walking to work, the same way I suggest for singers to learn. While you're doing all that, learn the piano reduction separately from the vocal parts, making sure that you understand the orchestration 
anything that might be missing in the reduction or any misprints that are standard that you need to fix. Once you have each separate skill mastered, start putting them together slowly and make sure you're listening to yourself. Remember that our job is to fix everyone else. So if you've learned mistakes in it, you'll correct people incorrectly. It takes a long time, but it's the best way I know to be secure. In the end, auditioners are looking to hear you play in style, but they're also listening to see if you know what you're talking about. So have lots of fun with the text. Enjoy playing with different voices. Give your baritone something a different sound than your soprano. And making people laugh or being serious. I still firmly believe that I got into the YAP program at Glimmerglass because when I auditioned with the first act finale of Cozy, I sang the very fun Despina part as with the most hideously awful sound and as much personality as I could muster. On a daily basis, if you're put in the position of having to sight read and sing, it's just the reverse. The piano playing, then, needs to be the thing that's automatic, because you'll need to be reading the text. The only way to do that is to not look at your hands. I've worked with some young coaches who have gotten very frustrated with me for putting a score between their eyes and their hands to keep them from looking down. That was also done to me when I was younger, and I was just as frustrated. But you have to believe me when I say that we have to do this. Looking at your hands means you aren't looking at the music or the conductor. It's that simple. And really, the keys aren't going anywhere. They are where they've always been. Trust your hands. Practice intentionally sight reading and never looking down. Your sight reading will improve. Your playing will improve. And you'll be able to start seeing the rest of the page and the conductor all in your peripheral vision without worrying about what your hands are doing. A solid basis in languages will ensure that you sight-read text better because you actually understand what you're saying. Italian, French, and German are an absolute must whether you plan to specialize later or not. Reading Cyrillic is also now becoming standard, as well as understanding the rules of Czech and, for Europeans, yes, English. If you want to practice your sight reading, again we come back to chord structure. Grab the closest opera score, open it to a page, and just start breaking down the chords. Play only whatever's on the strong beats, or if the chords are really thick, play the top and bottom note in each hand. Ten minutes a day of this kind of practice helps tremendously because your brain will start to focus on structure while your hands develop patterns and start to automatically go to the right places. As I like to say, in the eyes, out the hands, with no thought process in between. Standard audition repertoire includes, for Mozart, the second act finale of The Marriage of Figaro, and if you're using the Schirmer score, it's missing a very important double bass entrance in the section just before Antonio, or the first act finale of Cosi. For French, the Carmen Quintet. For Strauss opera, the opening of Electra. The opening of Rosenkavalier with Vie du Vast or the Jews Quintet from Zalome. And if you have not already learned Vidu Vast from Rosenkavalier and the composer's aria from Ariadne of Naxos, get them now, because <laughs> they're not sight-readable. For large chorus scenes, the second act of Bohème, the opening of Otello, or the Falstaff Fugue. I've also played a few other things throughout the years. In the States, I've had to play Anne Trulove's aria from The Rake's Progress, and yes, we really want to hear the bassoon solo in the Cavatina, sections of Die Zauberflöte, including Monostatos' aria, the Storm Trio from Rigoletto, and the Card Trio from Carmen. 
Different companies sometimes want different things, but if you have these under your fingers and in your brain, it's a great start. One last thing to remember, we've made a hobby into our job, a job that takes up every single piece of us, language, music, listening, talking, communicating, playing the piano, showing our personality, showing sensitivity. It's a difficult job to turn off and sometimes even more difficult to separate who we are from what we do because we're constantly bearing our souls to complete strangers. Remember that you're not just a pianist or just a coach, you're a person too. Find hobbies and interests that get you away from music so that you can have more of yourself to bring back to it. Obviously, there's so much more we could talk about, but this is already getting crazy long. I hope this information is all helpful and useful. In the end, we all find our own path and our own working language that works best for us, but hopefully this gives you an idea of where to start, what to work on first, and how to gain some practical experience. And that's all for today. As I said, with the moving process, I'm not exactly sure when I'll be back online, but I'll do my best to be up and running ASAP. In the meantime, to find biographies of all the colleagues on today's podcast, or if you have any questions or comments for me, Ellen Rissinger, please visit the blog at www.thedictionpolice.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and give it a high rating, post about it on Facebook and tweet about it on Twitter so that others can find it and benefit from it. Thanks for listening. See you next time.